all being Latino founders gives us this other mentality or gave us another mentality on how to approach business, how to ask for money. And, and we had to really open our mind to being way more ambitious and, and thinking way bigger. Because in Latin America, we don't think that big. We don't dream that big. Women get way less funded. Women have a lot of support, but somehow have a really hard time getting to that support. And it's a very male-dominated industry. Some of my most challenging things have been public speaking. I used to shake and get terribly red, like I couldn't pitch to save my life. From Gianni Media, it's Fear is a Liar, a show about rising and established professionals and entrepreneurs. All the fears they face related to risk, self-doubt, failure, unknowns, and much more. We take a deep dive into what didn't work and how they dealt with it. I'm Ronnie Gani, and on today's show, we hear how one young woman turned a struggling immigrant family situation into co-founding a tech travel startup. Leading a startup takes grit and courage. So what happens when you look around a room of investors and you begin to tremble during your pitch? How do you find the resolve to continue as beads of sweat form on your face and you're the only woman in the room? Daniela De Stefano Pachon has lived this moment many times. The 24-year-old is the COO and co-founder of TripLoop, a mobile platform for group travel management and communication. Her path was full of left and right turns and entrepreneurship didn't come naturally for her. Her story illuminates the possibilities that are unlocked when she embraces her fears of being in the spotlight, especially as a young female minority in tech. In this episode, we'll explore Daniela's childhood as a Colombian immigrant in the US and how she gained confidence to work through bullying, self-doubt, anxiety, and fear of public speaking. When my parents made the choice to move to the United States, it was a very conscious choice, but it was also a huge risk because unlike some immigrants, my parents didn't have any job or anything like locked down here. Actually, they were very young. They were um, around my age. I'm 24. And when we moved to the U.S., they only had like their university degree behind them and a little bit of experience, but not much. So they really started from the bottom up. They didn't even know English. So they went to uh, learn English in Georgia Tech, where they got a terrible loan, because it's definitely not the best school to go to learn English in. And my dad studied all night and delivered pizzas all day. Um, for like a year straight, he only like ate a hot dog for lunch every day at 7-Eleven. Uh, so I saw all of this. I was part of all of this. Um, I was in a lot of daycares. There was a lot of culture shock. But the point is that my family now is in, well, they accomplished their dreams. What their dreams were, like, that's what they have now. And they really instilled in me that as long as you have education and you have love, you're grounded 
and you know exactly how to get somewhere and you're taking a risk, but you, you calculated it, then as long as you're persistent, you can do it. Mm. And that's, that's basically where, where I come from. Gotcha. So where, where did you guys settle and what were some of the other challenges that you faced early on as you guys got settled in the country? Yeah, so we moved to Georgia, to Atlanta, and that was a huge change from Colombia. We're from the capital, Bogota. And I remember thinking the United States was going to be New York City, like all of it was going to be like New York City. Of and when I got to Georgia and I saw all these trees and I realized I wasn't with my family anymore, I started to cry and cry and I just couldn't believe it, what was happening at that point. We moved in with some kind of distant relatives and and through that time, I remember it being really hard and I remember like my my friends bullying me because they thought like I was poor and I didn't like have the concept that I was poor. I thought I, I was we were rich because <laughs> we had a house. But you attended the same school just because of the zoning or how did that yeah, go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it just so happened that like the neighborhood I was in, although it wasn't like the like everyone else's, it was zoned to a good school. Gotcha. So yeah, so once um, in the bus, they like changed the route one year to where we'd pass through my neighborhood and then go like to the nice ones. And that's when my friends like figured out, I guess, where I lived. I didn't, wasn't hiding it, but hmm. that was really shocking to me because I, I didn't think of it that way and it was it made, it, it made me angry because I knew all that we had struggled and all that we have done to have that small tiny house and I didn't understand why they'd like think we were less like I, there, I didn't know how to explain to them how much sacrifice this was and how what, because of that sacrifice in a way we were more rich than any of the families there because we had done way more then way more of a leap. Um, Went through so much more to get there. Exactly. So, so yeah, uh, stuff like that. It was, it was always weird. Like, there was always this weird identity thing. And mm. then when I go back to Colombia, they're like, you're American now. And I'm like, no, I'm not. <laughs> I'm Colombian. So I feel like I'm always having to, like, defend who my identity and who I am to, to other people. And that, in a way, has, has gotten me to where I am now. So, like, I know so well who I am. <laughs> and then in middle school, I became a very materialistic person. I just wanted to fit into a mold so much. Like I remember like going to sleep and wanting to wake up like a different person. Um, Trying to fit a box of what you saw around you, was that, would you describe yes, it that way? Yes, yes, yes. I wanted to be American. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I remember that's like, like I really wanted to be, like I really just wanted to wake up the next day and have blue eyes and blonde hair and um, normal family and like, and, and that wasn't my case because uh, even the way I was raised was different. And this went all the way into my high school where like more people have more liberty. My parents were always very protective over me. And they're like, we're immigrants here and you don't know, like, we're not, you know, for sure going to be here. We were still getting our papers and everything. So I always had this consciousness of like, like it was like a weight at first. Like I'm this and I couldn't detach from it no matter how much I tried. And then when I was in middle school, my dad got a, a really good job with a really good company, which was like him accomplishing his like big dream in, in Georgia. What kind of work? He is an engineer. He's a project manager. Because of that, we're able to get that like super nice house and that super nice neighborhood. And all of a sudden, I started to realize that 
We were still the same family. We were still doing the same thing that we always were, and people started to treat us differently. And that to me was like, whoa, this mm. is insane. Well, we got, I got into a new school and everything. This is high school. This is middle school. Middle now. school, okay. <laughs> yeah, and then the last year, like that was one year that lasted no time. And in the recession, my father lost his job and he couldn't find one for months. And now we were in a worse position than we were almost when we got to this country. Was it because you took the leap on the, the better house, maybe the better cars, and daily lifestyle just cost more than it used to? Was it mainly that or were there other factors as well? Yeah, I think we just felt safe with that job. So we invested in like a new house and new stuff. And the, that job lasted one year and then he lost it. So very quickly, I mean, there wasn't any savings or any kind of, there was no notion of that happening anytime soon. And I mean, if you talk to my dad now, he's one of the best employees because he always feels like he could be losing that job and now he's very prepared for it. But at that time, of all the things that had happened to us, that was the last thing we expected. Tell me about uh, when he announced it to the family. And, and, you know, what sorts of fears, uncertainties, unknown, self-doubts did the family face, including you? So when he announced it to the family, I was in middle school and still going through a very coming of age and trying to get my identity. So I was in my own. You had your own stuff own going thing, on. Yeah. Right. And I have a little sister and she's 10 years younger than me. So at that time I was like 14. She was four. So when my family has always been really good at communicating really good at keeping love, really good at, at facing things together because that's all we've had. You had when, the adversity from the past, right? Yes. It, this was just another adversity and we all sat down at the table and and like always, my parents were in the driver's seat and I just kind of was like, okay, well, if you say that everything's going to be fine and that we're going to make it out of this, of course we will. So how'd you do it? We lost a lot like we lost the a house? lot a lot we lost the house we lost we had other properties we lost that too and I had a really good friend that was with me at that time that didn't judge me she was Colombian too so her family and my family became really good friends and my dad would wake up every morning at you know seven six in the morning like if he had a normal job showered ate breakfast and would lock himself in the studio looking for jobs like like it was his full-time job um the recession was so bad though yeah there's, there's not a lot of opportunity out there yeah and it's discouraging obviously too at the same time yeah and at this time we had our resident ship and stuff like that so we were we were happy still because we had the things that we feared before was like being sent back or you know not and now we knew that we could be here and since we've had nothing before and this applies to me too I'm not afraid to have nothing again. And we weren't afraid to have nothing again. Despite her courage, things aren't easy for Daniela and her family. The Great Recession brings them significant financial difficulty. Through these trials, Daniela gains strength and develops her sense of self through her heritage, all while battling teenage anxiety and bullying in school. That's coming up. Stay with us. I'm Ronnie Gowney, and you're listening to Fear is a Liar from Gowney Media. 
I know it was bad because my family sent me to Colombia for that summer, like for the longest they ever have. And my mom said, quite literally, I don't want you to be experiencing this stress. And then he found a job in Houston. And then for, so for high school, we relocated to Houston. And they were not, they did awesome at like helping us find a house. And they had some, like they, well, we went from nothing to being so well taken care of by, you know, this company. Okay, so everyone packs up, goes, obviously spirits are lifted. The comp- not only does he have a job, but they're helping you find y- your way in, within the new town that you're going to be working for the company, which is huge, I'm sure, at that point, uh, as opposed to just getting a job, right? Mm-hmm. That was good enough, but then there were services provided, which is great. So then tell me about that transition then into the you know, new, new Texas culture um, and, and your next steps. Yeah, so high school was crazy because I came so with this like identity that I was carrying with me no matter where I went in Georgia almost because like we live there so I just was so connected to it and so moving to a new place was like a fresh start and we were in like a nice area and the high school I attended no one knew who I was and so, since mm-hmm. yeah and since I was the new girl they were like they just were like like all these crazy bizarre things of like you see in movies of them being like you're the popular girl now because you're new and like all these guys like wanting to talk to me and all this stuff that wasn't like that before because I was always kind of like the ugly duckling so still to me to this day I'm I am very shy really (laughs) in social situations because I don't know I am still have this like weird stigma concept yeah of, of like the past mm-hmm, hmm. of having to carry that so much with me so in high school I like was like pff, liberated from that and that was crazy but uh, and again I just noticed more and more how I didn't change and I was still the same person as before but people's perception can mean can you know break you or make you really yeah um people like that perceived me as not having money before treated me really bad or people that perceived me as being new and shiny treated me really well but I wasn't different and that was really like weird and hard and and even though like everyone was treating me well I I had a lot to work through in high school I was like rebellious and and I didn't I like I I understood my identity now uh, going back to Colombia was a big thing for us because we couldn't go back for like 10 years while we were getting our papers. Oh, you weren't allowed to. Yeah. And it would mess up the process. It would mess up the process. So that was a really hard thing in my earlier life because I had to carry this identity, but I didn't know how beautiful it was. When I went to Colombia, when I saw my family, when I saw my culture and how beautiful my country is, I was much more okay with carrying that weight. I was like, I know what I stand for now and that's fine. And if you want to perceive it this way, that's fine. And if you want to perceive it in a good light, then you're welcome to to be my friend. So you really had this this up and down spiral of identity crises that you kind of went through on your own, so to speak, with the help of your family support, of course. And it finally came to a strong, positive position in high school, right? Although I was in a better identity place in high school, I didn't think I was like destined for 
greatness in any way. I thought it was very average because in elementary and I was kind of treated like I was always behind and my grades were never the greatest. And then, so it kind of shot me down from the beginning to thinking that I could never be like in, in, in advanced classes and stuff like that. In high school, in one of my English classes, we were having a discussion and um, I've always been very philosophical and very into like having philosophical discussions. So I was, I was doing that in the class and my professor then was like, whoa, you have a really different way of thinking and not many students think like you. And it was the first time that I was told that I was different, but in a good way, like Positively. in a positive way. I always think what would have happened if I was told that from the very beginning. Like, even though he, he told me that and I did, I was in advanced English, for everything else, I felt very mediocre. And um, in testing, I have terrible anxiety and I don't have the best test results. Like, all these things to where I basically sat in front of my counselor and she told me that I wouldn't be able to make it into school like UT or anything, you know, of that tier. And what was, what was her reason as to why? Because of my grades and my positioning in the class. You know, they tell you, like, your number, blah, blah, blah. Of, and Where UT, you rank. Yeah. yeah, your ranking. And UT accepts only the top 10%. So she was just like, yeah, you should apply for other schools like Texas State or Texas Tech, which are great schools nonetheless. But it, it was kind of that perception that she had on me and on the schools which is unfair too to say you could never make it into a school like UT you would only make it into a school like this how'd you deal with what she was saying I, I was so apathetic to that kind of stuff at that point that I was just like okay sure and my parents were like no you're great they wanted me to apply to Rice they wanted me to apply to UT to all these greater schools and and with them, I was actually like, you know what, like, l let me be like, I'm totally okay with just going to, you know, like a school that like my counselor said and taking the easy road and just let me live my life. I want to go hang out yeah, with like, my friends. I'm fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was just like, it's fine. So what changed uh, shifting that anxiety you were mentioning and, and not so much of a focus on your grades to then eventually getting into UT? That's a good question. I think that in... Um, when I was in the ap application process, my parents were so persistent on me doing better. They'd read my essays and my mom would sit down with me and be like, no, you have a better life story than this. Like, no, you're better than this. You have, she really kicked me. And sometimes in a way that I resented her for it, like we would fight a lot, but never gave up on me. And I think when I was giving up on myself, that they didn't give up on me was the thing that saved me the most because, you know, you're a kid, so you don't measure like what that you're making a bad choice or you're making a good choice. We'll get back to our interview with Danielle in just a moment. And when we do, we'll learn about her decision to take a leap into a career with her now husband and co-founder, Diego career that's very different from the one she was educated to do. In this part of her journey, she'll face a whole new set of challenges, including one that makes her shake from fear. Stay with us. I'm Ronnie Gowney, 
and you're listening to Fear is a Liar from Gaddy Media. Diego is the CEO of Trip Loop, and he had the idea of Trip Loop. And it came from a trip that he helped manage over the summer of 60 high school students through 13 countries in 45 days. And these were fresh out of high school, very wealthy Mexican students. And the last thing they wanted to do was have a cultural experience. And the first thing they wanted to do was party. So naturally, Diego experienced just like every other group coordinator or guide or whatever, so many inefficiencies, so many communication issues, so many of the travelers just not knowing what to do or when they needed to wake up and him having to do all that himself. So he felt like he was working himself five times more than what he would have needed to had they been using like the right tools. And that's kind of when Trip Loop came about. Got it. So he works as an assistant to someone else who had a private company who had coordinated all this for all these students, right? And had been doing it, I imagine, for a while. And he just kind of fell into this assistant role with this individual. Yes. And it wasn't until months later where we were talking with all our friends that he noticed that this is a real business opportunity. And he pursued it for for like part of a summer um, as a business opportunity with other people and it just wasn't working really for him and that summer I we were together all the time so he'd go to meetings and I'd go with him and eventually I started to talk in the meetings after that meeting I was like I think you need me (laughs) like I think I'll do it because I see a huge opportunity here but also I think that you won't be able to do it without me (laughs) So tell me about where you guys stand at that point, right? So I imagine you graduated college already? We were going into our last year. Diego uh, was studying international relations at that time, and he is an international student from Mexico. We were applying to the university's kind of accelerator, which is called Longhorn Startup Lab, and it's with Capital Factory. And Josh Baer, the founder of Capital Factory, is the professor of that class. But there's an application process, just like an accelerator, to get in. And he had already applied to this the year before, like for many semesters with different ideas, because I'm telling you, Diego was restless about being an entrepreneur. And we applied this time. And now when I joined the team, our technical co-founder joined the team as well. And he was, he's actually Mexican as well. And he was in Spain at that time doing his master's in telecommunications. A friend of Diego's. Yes. Okay. Yes, which is crazy how we made it work. Like but the, it just coordinated somehow. It just happened. He's a fascinating guy. Like he just believed in it, and he has been so consistent even in the worst of times, where many other technical co-founders or even developers jump the ship because there's so much work. Yeah, they they don't need to be suffering like this, you know. So Tell me about the suffering. What was the what was the, the hardest parts you guys were going through at that time while applying and after applying? I think that the hardest part, well, there's a lot of hard factors into what we were doing. I think all being Latino founders gives us this other mentality or gave us another mentality on how to approach business, how to ask for money. And, and we had to really open our mind to being way more ambitious and and thinking way bigger 
because in Latin America we don't think that big, we don't dream that big. So we first had to learn how to like walk the walk and talk the talk and, and have that confidence. And it doesn't come overnight. No, 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 no. So that was hard. So many, so many investors has, have sat in front of us and said, I would invest in you too as individuals, but I know since this is your first company, it's going to fail. So talk to me on your next one. Mm. Stuff like that, which is so frustrating. Sure, but you moved forward anyways. <laughs> yes. You so, faced it. Yeah. yeah, and then the other factor is me being a woman. Women get way less funded. Women have a lot of support, but somehow have really hard time getting to that support and it's a very male dominated industry so some of my most challenging things have been public speaking i used to shake and like get terribly red like i couldn't pitch to save my life daniela's self-doubt may get the best of her at times and it's only reinforced by the lack of female role models in her line of sight but despite the ingrained sexism and oppression in the tech industry, she fights through to find her voice and confidence as a rising star in her field. Stick around for that. I'm Ron Gowney, and you're listening to Fear is a Liar from Gowney Media. And in our accelerator in the school, um, we'd have to pitch every, every at the beginning of every class. And sometimes I mostly would push Diego into doing it, and sometimes he'd push me into doing it. And eventually, the my co-founders and I made a choice that I'd have to do it because more women have to be on the stage for women to feel ever feel comfortable. I remember telling Diego, like, I don't even know how a woman pitches. Like, I know how the guy pitches, like the tone of voice and the body language, but I don't even know how a girl, like, kills a pitch. Mm. I've seen a lot of women do it since then, but at that time I was like, I don't have any examples, like, this sucks. And another occasion, we were talking to a potential client. It was a meeting that I took alone, and they were acting very enthusiastic about our product and saying that we were going to do all these things, etc. And um, then after that meeting, because it was so good, we went out for a drink, and he started to, like, touch my leg and kind of try to move upwards and I remember just going directly to the bathroom and calling Diego and being like I can't believe this is happening but this is happening um, and I got a taxi and left but it was it was really hard because that whole time that I was talking to them and I took that meeting with them I thought they were valuing me for my merits my company my pitch anything except um you know, sex. <laughs> sure. So that was that was terrible. Given all the anxiety and stress from the public speaking and the pitching that you had already been doing, and then this happens, how did you feel the few days, the few weeks, the few months that passed that you needed encouragement rather than to be discouraged by this instance to move forward, and what got you through it? Um, I think... Those things got me through it. Those moments where we would sit in front of mentors or people and they'd look at us like we were crazy or or tell us that travel is too difficult of a market to get into or to innovate. or And I mean, it still happens to this day. It just happens less. But after leaving those conversations or those incidents, I, I had like more 
drive. Drive. Yeah, I was like. It motivated you. Exactly, because like, how dare you not see? Like, you're missing out on me. And if you don't see that today, then I'm gonna make sure to prove it to you one day. You know,、mm. like join me or get out of my way. And, and I imagine that didn't just come overnight. I think circling back to a lot of your history and background, a lot of what you went through and the ups and downs kind of, I think, prepared you for those moments, even though they were probably terrifying at the time. And any example that comes to your mind of you, when you had like a breaking point well, with the public speaking? I know you remember you said you used to have the shakes. I'm sure you used to be very anxious. Any moments that you remember that you were kind of like breaking down? So, I was an an Uber driver. Uh, oh. Yeah, a Lyft driver. I was doing all kinds of weird part time. I was selling alcohol, like as a brand ambassador. All these kinds of weird, odd jobs. Because my my parents, my parents, when I told them that I was going to do this instead of looking for a job, were shocked. Oh, they were all for it, right? They were they were like so motivated. No, they were not. <laughs> they were not. Yeah, 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 yeah. They were not. They did not understand why I would do this. Why I would study one thing and then go this way. Yeah, not go the traditional route. Yeah, and 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 it was like to that point where I felt no one really believed in us, and my parents always believe in me. I know, but they really were doubtful about what was what I, the choice I was making. So they were like, "Well, you do you, but we are are done financially supporting you as as they're totally entitled to do at this point." So at that point we had trip loop. I felt terrible because we were my parents and I normally have really good relationship. I didn't feel like I could tell them about this、um, freely without them them being doubtful about doubtful it. Doubtful and judging it, yeah. And I was working all these odd jobs, working myself like a dog, and I had just graduated. Was there moments where you said, "This is not worth it. I'm driving Uber. I'm driving Lyft. I'm selling liquor. My parents aren't talking to me anymore the way they used to because they're obviously thinking that I'm not doing what I should be with my life. I have Diego, who's probably working his ass off, so he doesn't have enough time to necessarily sit with me and encourage me. Instead, he needs me to work harder. Did you have moments of just it's not worth it? Yeah. So. Yes, all the time. Even to like this day, there will be something that happens, and you're just like, "Why am like?" I see my friends, and they're you know working their nine to five jobs, and get home and don't have stress, and have weekends, and don't have stress. And I do. And the time that I was doing Uber and Lyft, and and had all that pressure, was the time that I think I was I had to be the most sure of what I was doing. So that was the time where I was the strongest, really, about trip loop and most. Motivated, and no, no one could tell me I was wrong. No one could. I was also researching extensively the market, doing everything I can to validate, making models to understand the potential of what we're doing because I needed to calculate my risk. And Diego actually was not like work harder. He was more、uh, the most emotional, supportive thing ever, as I was to him. And I don't know how founders can do it without good co-founders, whether it be your best friend or 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 having like an intimate relationship with them, because you do need to break down sometimes and be like, what are we doing? Why are we doing this? So, what was the turning point for Trip Loop Ten, right, where you finally started to see some light, hopefully, and and when did that come? So, Trip Loop is an app that helps with group travel. We have itinerary management, communication, chat, safety features. It basically bundles all of the apps that travelers are already using 
into one app where it has all your travel information, but it's for group travel. So it's very specific product. And when we first had the idea and we're still working on it, we talked to a lot of the professors at UT that do student-led study abroad trips and stuff like that. They pointed us to a third-party provider for um, study abroad trips. And they were actually here in Austin and we went to talk to them. We went to go talk to a few of them actually and, and the response was more of a like, when can we buy this and how much does it cost? More than saying, oh yeah, this is a good idea or this is a bad idea. Mm -hmm. So we had that, that, we had that in the bag for a long time. <laughs> And now we had that validation, but we didn't have the money to like get, to throw into development it. and create it and stuff like that. At this point, all of our advisors and mentors, because part of the Capital Factory Accelerator is that you have this huge pool of mentors that you can use, which we use so hard. Like I think the most important thing for us was knowing that we're novice and that we don't know anything and letting every, everyone tell us what to do and then kind of picking what we felt was the right thing to do. And that's how we still do things. We never feel like we know exactly what to do. And they were all like, okay, it's time for your friends and family round. Do you guys have any friends and family with money? And me, my background, I tell you, we come very humble beginnings. So no, <laughs> that was like, I was like not on my side and Diego is from Mexico and he, he does have connections there, but nothing to fund a friends and family around. So at this point we had an advisor who also invested in us and he is from Mexico as well. And he has a circle of very successful friends. So you ran into him through your resources at the Capital Factory? We ran into him through a networking hour. Okay. Yeah, and he's and he's a Latino as well. And and I was talking about advocating, you know, that and how we need to empower ourselves. And he came up to me then and was like, "I love everything you're saying. What do you guys do?" We had a beer with him, connected so well, and he's been one of the greatest allies I think to our team since then. So was he the first investor, or his his network was were they the first investors? Yeah. So we went to Mexico and we did a trip, and this was one of those moments where I was scared about it because it was literally like I can see the table in my head when I close my eyes, but when we were pitching to them for investment, it was like a group of 20 men, just men. Yeah, and you're the only woman in the I room? I was the only woman in the room. Wow. That's Daniela De Stefano Pachon. Daniela and Diego left that meeting with 20 new investors in TripLoop, enabling them to build the app and make improvements on the technology. Since that successful funding round, they've connected with several other leaders in the travel industry and partnered with the Japan Travel Bureau. Daniela has continued to find her voice in pitch meetings with influential investors, and that fear that she felt so fiercely around public speaking, she conquered it. After working with a public speaking coach, Daniela pitched TripLoop on the big stage in Silicon Valley, where the company was recently accepted into an accelerator. She says the moment was liberating. A quick shout out to Simon and Frankie who helped me produce the show. Thank you. To my daughter Sabrine and our future Ganis. I hope you hear this one day and it provides some value on your journey. For our audience, if the show provided a positive takeaway, 
please subscribe and share with others in your network. Thanks for tuning into Fear is a Liar, where we share how our guests embrace all the fears related to risk, self-doubt, failure, unknowns, what didn't work, and how they dealt with it. Daniela De Stefano Pachon and Ronnie Gianni. I'm out.